Good. All right, you've got the handout, and we are going to zoom through a whole bunch of stuff um, tonight, okay? So remember to have your map handout. I may refer to this briefly, um, and obviously your Bible. Let me... It helps when the teacher has his Bible, too. But we're going to start with this um, basically introductory teaser and a guide that I gave you um, in the email about the study for tonight. So uh, we're going to turn to Romans chapter, you can see this in the handout. I actually have this printed out for you, so you don't need, you can be referring to your Bible. Uh, But you can see Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So we're going all the way over, deep into the New Testament, so to speak. Here's the Apostle Paul, um, and he, he says, and, and I've got it outlined for you here, um, in, in these two passages, in Romans 4, 13 through 18, and Romans 9, 3 through 11, uh, you're going to get some references. Paul wants you to understand and, and is presuming that any, you know, Christian above basic entry level understands what he's talking about. So let's look at some of these terms and what he's talking about. Uh, For the evangelia, the promise, or it actually could be translated the announcement or summons that is fitting with a decree, in other words, like a call. For the promise or the summons into a call uh, to Abraham and his spermati, now, you're going to know this term. This term is not going to surprise you because, of course, we have a, um, pro- a procreative term, right, in the English language. Um, when, when, uh, when a man and a woman, uh, uh, you know, move towards having a baby, right, when they have sexual relations, the man uh, produces what? Sperm, which is seed, right? Okay. So here, this is a plural, Abraham and his spermati, um, which can be translated seed, offspring, or remnant. In the ESV translation, and in most translations, you're going to see that seed terminology or remnant terminology, that spermati, be translated as offspring or descendants. But what I'm trying to highlight for you because this is going to go back into, we're going to be looking at covenants tonight and getting, continue to get this big view overview of the Old Testament. You have to understand the covenants and the covenant language. And there's some key terms, including seed, that if you miss, if you miss uh, spermati or sperma uh, in the New Testament and linking that uh, to Zerar in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, you're really missing, I mean, you're just kind of missing the boat. So, uh, Paul is saying, uh, for the promise or the summons to what is decreed that was given to Abraham, notice this, not only to Abraham, but can you all see this, the way I have it outlined for you? It's given to Abraham and to whom else? His, right? His spermati, his seed, his, his offspring, or the remnant. That can be translated remnant, uh, which is important language, of course, when we're in Isaiah. That he would be heir of the world. In other words, he's going to inherit the world. Now, in the New Testament, who else talks about inheriting the world? 
Ever heard anybody else in the New Testament talk about in that kind of grand language? Inherit. Guy who taught with some beatitudes occasionally. Who would that be? Jesus, right? Okay, all right. So, um, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, I'm just giving you the scripture here. Now, so in other words, in one verse, in that verse that I sent out in the email last night, you should pick up on, this is a power-packed verse from the Apostle Paul that's linking back all through the Old Testament. And again, Isaiah, kind of as a bridge from the Old Testament to the New, Isaiah is circling around these covenants and this covenant language, and uh, he's highlighting this for us. But what I'm telling you is you go over to Paul, Paul's going to do the same kind of thing from his New Testament perspective. So you see that in one verse. We've got all of this reference back to Abraham and his seed. And what I'm telling you and what we're going to cover tonight is, or at least begin to cover, is this is all covenant language and promise language that has to do with the gospel and has to do with understanding the Bible. Okay, so keep going with this little passage here. For... And by the way, Paul is making this point that the real promises or the promise to Abraham and the seed uh, it, it comes and is fulfilled not under the law, okay, but under the righteousness of faith. And Paul, of course, is pounding this issue in both Romans and Galatians. If you know your New Testament, you know Paul makes this huge emphasis that Abraham is justified and righteous and receives the covenant promises that he receives, which are the big ones, before Moses and the Ten Commandments. I mean, obviously, before he's, he's historically way before Moses and the Ten Commandments. This is central to what Paul is teaching us about the gospel in the New Testament. Everybody with me? Any questions on that? Everybody get what I'm saying? Okay, All right. So let's keep going with Paul here. For if it's adherence of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. So in other words, what Paul is saying is the promises to Abraham and to his seed are not limited to or specifically linked to or contingent upon the law and to Jews who are under the law. This is a bigger story, and it's also not confined to or chained to the law and a specific Judaic culture. Y'all with me? Okay, that's, that's what he's saying, okay? So, for if it's adherents of the law uh, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Side note, brief note, we can come back to this. We'll come back to this in Isaiah. Let me clarify. He's not saying there's no sin, okay? Do Gentiles who aren't under the law sin? Are they subject to God's judgment and death, even if they don't have the Ten Commandments? What do you think? Yes, but they're not specifically transgressing the law. So those are, those are two different terms. Transgressions or trespasses are different than the more broad issue of sin which is why I'm really glad I'm in the Presbyterian Church where we pray for forgiveness of all our debts uh, because my, my prayer is not puny and limited to just trespasses or transgressions of specific laws. Now, you guys may be so good that you only need that coverage 
on just specific laws, but I like need the whole shebang. Anybody here need the whole shebang? I'm really glad I get forgiven of my debts instead of specific transgressions or trespasses. Which is why Jesus in the, in the Sermon on the Mount teaches us to pray for forgiveness of our debts, not just our trespasses or tra transgressions. But a lot of churches teach you just to pray. Okay, so, so anyway, that's just a, a, a uh, note. Um, and I'm not being bad. I'm just highlighting this issue for you, okay? So uh, transgression. Uh, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that, there, that there's that term again, ha apangelia, the promise or the call or summons of Abraham and his seed may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his seed, all his spermati, all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, okay, so it can go to the Jew, right? The Jew who believes, okay? But also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's not saying the father of every single human being. He's saying the father of everyone who lives by faith, which is Jew and Gentile alike. Is everybody with me on this? You'll kind of remember this, right, from the New Testament. Everybody tracking with me? Okay. So, um, um, who is the father of us all? As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Now, that is a major covenant promise that God makes to Abraham, right? In fact, part of the change of Avram's name from Avram to Abraham means he's the father of many nations. He's not just the father of Israel. Got it? Okay. Uh, so again, Paul is going back and saying, look, it's right here in Torah. It's right here in Genesis. Before we ever get to Moses, what I'm talking about with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that Jew and Gentile alike are both heirs, it's all the way back into Genesis. This is, Paul keeps coming over this stuff. But you've got to understand the covenants in the covenant language and understand what he's saying. I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And then this is a huge line here. This is what the promise is all about, right? I mean... This the, the promised land, return from exile, you know, getting out of the exodus, um, an old barren couple being able to have children, and ultimately the resurrection of the Messiah from the dead. All of this comes under, and Paul is saying, this is what God promised Abraham. Okay, here it is. Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, which is not only then tracking us back to Abraham and Sarah, who cannot have children. There's no way. She's long past her cycle. They're old. There is no way they're going to have a child. Just no way. Okay? It would take a virtual resurrection for them to have a child. And they do. But what this just hooked you back to is also Genesis chapter 1. Because in the beginning, 
you know, was there a bunch of substance and God came down and fought the monster and created the world? Is that the way creation worked? No, there's nothing. And God creates something out of nothing. So, um, you know, Paul has just taken us all the way back through, all the way through um, the whole covenantal structure of Abraham all the way back to the uh, creation and the creation covenant. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll go back through some of that. But you should generally understand what I'm saying, right? We just moved all the way back from, you know, down to Genesis 22 to... um, um, to 18, 17, to 15, to 12, and all the way back to Genesis 1, okay? All right, so um, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Verse 18, in hope he, this is Abraham again now, Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. In other words, it was hopeless, but he still believed, okay, when it was, when it was hopeless, so that he might become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall, and there's that term again, y'all see that? That's why I've got it highlighted for you. So shall your spermati, your seed, your offspring, your remnant be. Okay? Everybody with me on that? That's Paul. That's way over in the New Testament. Uh, Then, Paul, way over in the New Testament, continues in Romans 9, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I elaborated briefly on the conclusion of Paul's great excursus and revelation about um, Israel in Romans 9 through 11. Now, I emphasized Romans 11 a week and a half ago on a, at, the, at the end of a Sunday sermon about tracking with uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, okay? Remember that rejected good news sermon? And we went all the way through Acts 28 and then on to Romans 11. Okay, well, now this is the beginning of that conversation of Romans 9 through 11. And Paul says this. He's agonizing over the fact that many of his brothers, many of his Jewish brothers and sisters are not believing. So he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's a whole nother teaching, a whole nother sermon. But what he is saying is, I would be willing to die. I'm willing to go to hell if a bunch of my Jewish brothers and sisters would believe. Yes, Nancy. Reed is the one to go to. So, yeah, reach. Yeah, and Bruce Leopold had a problem getting in too. So, Um, okay, so uh, verse 4. Romans 9, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong. Now, this is an exquisite statement by Paul, and that's why I've broken it out for you. There's going to be, you understand that with, uh, in the Bible, the numbers 6 going into 7 and 3 are really important numbers, right? If you can get to 6 and then take it to 7, that's a really important number, number. And so what I've outlined it here, I've obviously superimposed numbers here for you so you can catch the six going into seven here. So he's saying the Jews are Israelites and these seven things belong to them under the Old Testament and under uh, the law. 
So again, I, again, Paul doesn't like number these. I'm, I'm numbering them. Okay, everybody with me? Okay. So number one, the adoption. You know, the New Testament is the first place that talks about adoption. God adopts, elects, and calls Israel to be his son or to be his children, okay? Uh, the glory, the doxa, the glory. The glory belongs to Israel, you know, under the covenants, right? The covenants, there it is. Uh, hi, diatheke. Uh, um, and I went ahead and put the A to there just so, so because the E just doesn't seem to, you know, you're going to get confused on that. So that's, that's why with the the, it's a, an, an Ada there. But anyway, haideatheke, um, that is the Greek term for uh, the covenants, okay? Um, and, and then the law-giving, the law-giving belongs to Israel. The worship, the letreo, okay, the worship Remember when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman and she says, well, you folks like to worship down in Jerusalem. My people worship here up on this mountain and everybody's got their own opinion about God and religion, but we're all kind of following the same God anyway. So when the Messiah comes, he'll straighten us out on this. And you may remember that Jesus answers us with a couple major answers. Number one, he tells her, I am the Messiah. But then he goes ahead and corrects her and says, you know, as much as Jesus critiques Judaism or Jewish leadership and its understanding of its religion, he is flat out solid on this. There is no question in Jesus' mind that God has commanded that the true worship of God be in his temple, right, in Jerusalem, up till and through when the Messiah comes. So Jesus corrects her and says, no, this is not a just your opinion, my opinion. You know, he said, she said, this is the Jews have it right. Y'all remember this? This is in John chapter 4 when Jesus has the, the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. Okay, so the worship. And, and then six, the promises. There's that term again, right? Epangelii. Well, there it's plural. Okay, so not epangelia, it's epangelii. Everybody see that? I've got it in kind of transliterated for you there so you can read it. Everybody see that, right? So all of those things belong to the Israelites under the Old Testament. And then seventh, and this is the clincher, because who have I been talking about a whole lot? A guy named his first letter in his name is A. Abraham, right? So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who's also named Israel. Now, Paul doesn't say three, but I'm telling you there's three. Y'all with me? Everybody can count, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? So you got a seven and you got a three. It just occurs to me when I was, you know, I decided to go ahead and graph this out. And it's like, whoa, he's making a really strong statement here. So to them belong the patriarchs. So that's your seventh as well as a three. Okay. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. So the seven belongs to them. And on top of that, according to the flesh, the Christ comes from them. Um, and notice this. The Christ, I had honestly never focused on that particular transition 
until I graft it out for us today. Notice that. He's talking about Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. I mean, it's right there in the text. Okay? All right. Um, Martin. Yes. Is this the first place that those three collectively are referred to as the patriarchs, or is there an earlier scripture reference for that? That is a very good question. I'd have to go back and look because it's unusual, actually. That's the way we refer right. to them. You pick, up, you pick up on that early on, so yeah. to speak, but I just wondered if. This may be, I mean, Jesus never, refer, the, the, the term in the Greek is pateras. So, and I believe, because I was obviously, you can tell I was looking at the Greek today. Um, so I, I, I saw the term and come to think of it, Jim, I'm thinking that may be the first ever use of this in the Bible. Right. I just, I, for some reason, I was trying to pick up on something possibly earlier. Now they refer to the fathers. Like Stephen refers to the fathers. I didn't pull that because I didn't want to overwhelm us, and I know we're like we're gonna. But uh, actually, we at some point we need to look at Stephen's speech before he gets stoned, and he may refer to the fathers, which would probably also be pateras. So, but it's, it, I I believe in like an English translation. I don't recall seeing patriarchs earlier than this, but I, I we'll check we'll check. That's a really that is a really good question. Um, so everybody get that. That's a, that's a really notable thing there. Um, uh, so verse 6, you can see he's just gone off on a little doxology there about Jesus being God, right? Everybody see that? Um, and let me just confess, I don't think I've ever preached on this particular passage because um, it just... You know, it would be great to preach on if I preached the entire book of Romans, but this is not the passage when Paul's getting into all this travail over the Jews. It's not your classic Sunday passage with Protestant Christians that you just think of, let's do this one on Sunday, okay? So, um, but anyway, to keep going. But the seventh thing is the Christ, from the patriarchs. Yes. So, uh, but it is not as though halagos... The word of God has failed. This is what is on trial, so to speak, in the dock that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 through 11. Alternatively, God himself and his word. Is God covenant trustworthy? Is his word covenant trustworthy? And the reason I've also highlighted that for you, because you go back to the Old Testament, and you're not going to get the term promises per se, uh, but you're going to get the term word a lot, the bar, okay? So, um, for not all who are descended from, and here, here's he's coming to this, okay? And, and you heard me on the other side of this discussion, because Paul circles back to this in Romans 11. So, a week and a half ago, you heard me quoting from Paul on this issue. Um, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, he just made a provocative statement there. Everybody with me? He just made a provocative statement. And we, we saw the, the, the conclusion, or him moving towards the conclusion of that argument about the tree and calling us not to be proud because um, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, 
of the fullness of true Israel will then come in also. And they're going to be like branches that have been broken off from the olive tree that actually belong on the olive tree in the first place, whereas we're, we're just wild branches that get grafted on. Okay, So we're, we're not supposed to be, yeah, we got this before you did, Jewish people. You know, We're supposed to be very humble when the real branches come back on. That's what Paul is saying over in 11. Y'all remember this, right? Okay, from about a week and a half ago. So, but here he's saying, he's making his bold statement. I mean, this is provocative. This is going to upset like quite a few Jewish people the way Jesus upset a lot of Jewish people. Uh, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his sperma seed. Okay, so he's drawing a distinction between biological seed Catch this now. And the spiritually elect seed, and he's giving the point of reference and analogy through Isaac. Because what God says, what God assures Abraham, when Abraham is so upset that Sarah's making Abraham, you know, send off Hagar and Ishmael. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll have to talk about that later. But uh, look, because let me keep going. But anyway, so you, well, Abraham has a son named Ishmael by, by uh, Sarah's handmaid because Sarah foist this on Abraham. Okay, she gets impatient after years and years, and she's barren and everything else. And and and, and when when Isaac comes, when Yitzhak comes, Abraham has to get rid of Ishmael. And the Lord assures Abraham that um, the real seed under the covenant is through Yitzhak. And so what Paul is saying here is this continues to apply. Just because you're Jewish and you can say, well, generally, I'm from the line of Yitzhak. I'm not from Ishmael. Paul says, so what? God continues to elect all the way through. Some are not true believers. Some are not spiritually seed, even though they're biologically seed. Same thing, by the way, if Paul were around today, he'd be saying, great, you're all church members and you all got your children baptized, so what? Some are seed and some are not. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Okay. So in any event, that's, uh, that's what he's saying. Through Isaac, your sperma be named. Now, let's go over to where he says that. If you look down below, um, it's my second little passage. I'll come back to Genesis 15. Genesis 21, 12. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy. This is Ishmael. And your maidservant, this is Hagar. Listen to everything that Sarah tells you. For through Isaac... Your Zerah will be reckoned. So just like his, his, through his faith, through Abraham's faith, God reckons to him righteousness, so also through God's elective grace, he reckons children to him. That's what he just said. God is the boss on salvation. Everybody with me on this? Okay. Um, so, and this is, not, uh, this is not a Calvinist lecture per se. This is, I'm coming straight out of Scripture here. This is all out of Scripture, okay? Um, Genesis, now let's go back up to, um, oh yeah, let's, uh, Paul, uh, Paul's parallel passage. Uh, 
in Galatians 4, 23 and 28, I just gave you a little highlight here. His son, is, he's, he's saying the same kind of thing. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born through the promise. Everybody see that? This is the differentiation. He comes through the promise. The apangelia is what Paul is saying. Am I making it too cold? I'm sorry about that. Okay. All right. So, um, but his son by the free woman was born through the promise, the evangelia, same term that I've already given you. Ha evangelia, okay. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are here's what we are. Are we children just of the flesh? Are we children of the promise? And he says, real believers in Jesus all come in as children of the promise. Okay? Children of promise. So you have people who are up, they're Ishmael and not of the seed of Israel. Yes. But they can become elect back through this. Yes. Door. Which is what the New Testament is telling you, too. You open they the. They get lumped in with us as Gentiles. Yes, totally. Process, yeah. Right? Mm hmm. And you see that in the, literally in the opening page in the New Testament, which is a radical statement. It's a revolutionary statement, okay? So, um, um, in, the, in the bloodline of Jesus, um, in the bloodline of Jesus in, in, is included Ruth, okay, who's from the line of Lot. And Lot is clearly... <laughs> Not a child of promise, but Ruth is. Okay, everybody with me on this? Um, the Canaanite women. Um, Rahab. Tamar. They're not on the right side of these family trees that we track in the Old Testament. They are not. But they're clearly children of promise in the line of the Messiah. And Matthew, supposedly writing the Jewish gospel, is telling you that in the opening page with that genealogy. Do, see what I'm saying, Nancy? Okay. Um, all right, so back up to Genesis 15, 5 and 6. And he, this is the Lord, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look, this is the seed thing. You've got to get this with the seed thing, okay? Uh, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, then the Lord said to Avram, so shall your zarika, your zerah, your seed, offspring, descendants be. This is what Paul is talking about. Everybody with me on this? Not only later in the conversation uh, that's recorded in Genesis 21, but this is like the big reference. Because here is the sequence. You've heard me say in this study already, in, in just given the big picture of the Old Testament, you have to understand Genesis 15:6. I'm sure probably in 18 sermons in the last five years, I've highlighted, if not in a couple of them preached directly, on Genesis 15, 6. Martin Luther, 
Luther in real time and all that kind of stuff, right? You've got to know 15.6. Well, the C statement comes immediately before the justification by faith. So track with me here now. Okay, so, and the Lord takes him outside and says, look up at the heaven, look at the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your seed, your children, be. And what happens next? Verse 6. It's really short, but you've got to know the context. Remember, this is years before Isaac even comes. Okay? Verse 6. And he, Avram, believed Yahweh, the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is Paul, Hebrews, all the second part of the New Testament keep telling us this is the gospel. It's right here. The gospel of grace, of justification by faith, right there in Genesis 15, 6. And it's a response to the statement about the seed, the covenant promise about the seed. Okay? So you see why this seed language and promise language is really important. Everybody with me? Okay. Um, now, let's just go to, well, is Jesus aware of this? What do you think? Absolutely. So let's just look at one little example from Jesus. John 8, 33 and 37. They, Jesus has just said, you know, if you believe in me, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Everybody remember this conversation? So the Jewish leaders are offended by this. Free? What do you mean? We're free. We're not slaves to anybody. We, belong, we are children. We're sons of God Almighty. Even if we may be under the boot or the um, you know, sandal of the Romans right now, spiritually and ethically, we are free. How dare you insult us? We are sons of Abraham. This is the dynamic going on, okay? Because Jesus has just said, you've got to believe in me to be set free. Free? Made righteous and free? Huh. We are already righteous. We're sons of Abraham. So that's the dynamic going on. 8.33, they answered him, we are sperma. Everybody see that? We are. We're sperma of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, which is, of course, funny because they've been enslaved by the Babylonians, by the Persians, by the Romans. Okay. Um, how is it that you can say you will become free? Remember, Jesus just said, believe in me, believe in the truth, the truth will set you free, okay? And he comes back in verse 37 and says, I know that you are sperma, biological, okay, of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So in other words, you're not really of Abraham. And he goes on to tell them, you're actually children, you're sons of the devil. Yep. You may remember this. <laughs> if things are getting really hot and heavy by the time you get to John chapter 8. Okay? Now, let's move on from that. Any questions? Okay. So, um, yeah, just a little stuff up on um, page 2 here. Visual, so it's kind of easy. Um, Breit, most of you will know that term. It's a Hebrew term for um, covenant. Okay? It comes from terms that have to do with, um, on the one part, cutting, okay? But on the other part, like cleansing, like barar, okay? To make clean. 
And it's like if you're in covenant with somebody, things are made clean, right? Like you can imagine if you're in tension with somebody, but then things get kind of washed out, right? And there can actually be peace. That seems to be where this comes from in the ancient Semitic or Hebrew, okay? Um, so, berit in Hebrew, I've already given you the diatheke in the, in the Greek. Um, testament, yes, in English is like covenant, like last will and testament, right? The thing that's confusing is you can get under the impression because we titled these, this book here, Old Testament and New Testament, you might immediately assume there's one covenant in the entire opening 39 books, which would be a huge mistake. We've already covered several covenants, okay? And number two, if you call it the Old Covenant, it kind of sounds like it's dead, right? That's very confusing. So Old, Old Testament is not that great, great a term. That's why you'll a lot of times hear me referring to the Hebrew Scriptures or the Hebrew Bible. Um, because it's not dead, it's the living word of God, which we believe in the faith. Jesus makes that very clear. And secondly, um, a lot of the covenants in the Old Testament continue to apply even to Gentile Christians, which we're about to go into. So anyway, um, this, this next thing that I've got for you is just like a Bible, a study Bible breakout that I was able to pull and place easily here from the NIV um, Zondervan study Bible. Okay, nothing fancy here, but it gives you the breakout, okay? This is what you get in any standard Bible study, packaged Bible study that you might read, okay? That's kind of like non-denominational, evangelical, okay? So that's there. The Noahic, the Abrahamic, you've got an Abrahamic A and an Abrahamic B, uh, the Sinaitic. And then this is interesting because it goes ahead and gives you the Phineas Covenant, which virtually nobody highlights, but that's a very, that's a significant, and that points out there's actually more we can put in here. God makes covenant with individual people and in individual situations too. We typically, though, want to focus on like the big picture ones, okay? Um, but anyway, um, uh, that, that priestly covenant with Phineas and his line in Numbers 25 is notable. Um, the Davidic covenant, which we've already spent some time on, in a couple prior sessions in giving the Old Testament overview, and I spent a lot of time on it in the Psalms. And then the New Covenant, which is um, basically Deuteronomy is pointing towards the New Covenant with the circumcision of the heart, all the way back to Moses, okay? And then it, it continues to rumble and develop all the way through its high point in the Old Testament of Jeremiah 31. Now notice that there are different types of these covenants. You can see it in the chart there. You can easily follow this. There are royal grant covenants. There are suzerain vassal covenants. Like The suzerain is like, I am the king, and you are the um, farmer who wants to be under my protection, and you and your boys have to fight for me, but when the bad guys come, you can come into my city and I'll give you protection, but you pay taxes to me, and your sons fight with my army when we go to war and I'm the boss, I'm the king, you're under me, okay? But I will give you loyalty and covenant loyalty if you're loyal to me. Now, God in the relationship, who do you think is the king in the relationship with, like, Abraham? God or Abraham? Who's the king? Okay, so anyway, um, 
There's a specific, that's an ancient Near Eastern type of agreement. And you, ha- you kind of have to know that to understand the dynamic of some of these covenants. Um, the Sinai covenant, same kind of thing. There's no question who the king is. God is the king. God's like the emperor, okay? But God is taking these people in under his wings. Everybody kind of followed that dynamic, right? You're not talking about equal parties. Um, um, obviously, the Phineas is a royal grant, or maybe not obviously. The Davidic is a royal grant. Uh, the New is a royal grant under this chart. Um, I'm not going to try to go through these right now. I want to keep going to get us back to the beginning. Okay? And we will pick up next study, moving back up through some of this. Are you learning quite a bit about the Old Testament through these covenants? I hope you are. I'm probably telling you some stuff you either kind of vaguely remember or maybe didn't even know, right? I hope. Yeah? It's good? Okay. All right. So, um, good. All right. So, um, let's go back to the very beginning. Speaking of king and who's in charge, who do you think is in charge before we exist, us as non-existent beings or the one who is eternal before all time? Who, who, do, you think, who, do, you, who do you think the king is in that situation? <laughs> Obviously, it's God, and this is like a royal decree. Now, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on with Genesis 1. I, I do want to highlight some of this for you um, just with broad strokes. Okay, in the, in the ancient world... The general tendency with most cultures and most religions is to do one of the following two things. The easiest thing to do is to say our king or our pharaoh comes from the line of the gods. And the pharaoh or the king represents or images and is an extension on earth of the gods to us. People who work for the king or the pharaoh are very blessed but they're not in the image of the king. I mean, the, the gods, okay? Y'all understand what I'm saying? And by the way, normal people, like people who just do work, and definitely servants and slaves, ain't no way. The, 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 these are from a different caste, a totally different caste. Most of the ancient world, all the way through to quite a bit of modern world. I mean, how does Hinduism work? Is everybody the same level in Hinduism? No, you're, you're, you're different, you know, races. You're different animals. You're different. It's just different, right? Uh, if you want to get a little more democratic, you can say that, well, everybody who's in our group comes from the right gods or from the real gods. But those people out there that we fight against or make fun of or that look different than we are, they don't. So our group, the people who look like us, this is the more democratic version of what I just said, right? We're, let's expand this out. Maybe just the aristocracy, or maybe you get all the way to all the free people, right? All the free people, certainly not the slaves, but the free people. Maybe the entire, like, polis, the entire city represents or relates to or was made by the real gods, okay? And then the other people are kind of garbage, you know, that came through some lower level of purpose and process. That's a general summary. Y'all get where that kind of impetus would come from, Right? with human-created cultures and religions. That, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, even people in the modern and postmodern world, even some people who call themselves Christians, 
almost do a little version of the same kind of thing, right? Those people from those other countries that look different than we are or who have different skin color or whatever, they're kind of lower level, right? But the radical thing about the Bible in Genesis is everybody's made in the image of God. I mean, so even though this is a Jewish, ultimately a Jewish text, it's really radical. Because like all humanity comes from the same beginning and, and God made human beings, male and female, by the way, not just the males. Male and female need to be together to reflect the image of God. Now that is radical stuff. Right? Okay, so that's, that's right off the bat, by the way. Uh, if you get into people telling you how the Bible and Christianity are so oppressive and exclusive and this, that, and the other thing, you start talking to them about this stuff. I mean, everybody wants to beat up on the Bible and, and Christian faith and say all these other religions, we need to understand them because they're so much more inclusive. Oh, yeah? Really? Have you ever actually studied this stuff? Okay, so um, anyway, you've got the creation order there and the Constitution. That's kind of what... Uh, the Constitution of the Creation, okay? I'm not talking about the United States Constitution. I'm talking about a really higher-level Constitution. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4. And in the midst of that, you go all the way up top to the Imago Dei, made in the image of God, and the creation mandate. Okay, that's general. Even if you're not Reformed or this, that, and the other thing, you're, you have to acknowledge that. But notice the Zondervan, for instance, chart doesn't refer to any of this stuff in the early pages of Genesis as covenants because that term, it's true, is not used. Barit, we don't get till we get to Noah. Okay? It's not, it doesn't pop until Genesis 6 and afterwards. But, by the way, let's just look at this a little bit and I'll come back to this. We'll pick this up next time. Okay? Genesis 1 through 3. You have what is generally often referred to as by many people, and certainly Reformed-type people, as the Adamic Covenant. And it's kind of in parts one and two. So you have the Edenic Covenant, the Eden Covenant, um, which Reformed theology kind of superimposes this structure of the covenant of redemption and then the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. None of those terms are being used in the early pages of Genesis. Okay, These are, these are structural terms um, that are under the Westminster Standards, for instance. So I'm not going to go into all that very much with you, but I'm just telling you that, so I will not fail to cover that. And believe me, like Reed at RTS, they talk about that a lot. Right, Reed? So, um, all right, so um, the covenant of works in, in our kind of structure, theological structure or point of reference, at least, would, would include all the way through this creation mandate. Remember, you're my representatives on earth. Fill the earth, subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply, okay? Um, all the way through the specific Eden covenant, which has to do with um, uh, doing the work of priest in the garden. I'll come back to this next time. The terms that are used for keeping the garden are the terms that are used for priest in Leviticus and how they're supposed to take care of the tabernacle. This is what Adam is supposed to be doing in the garden, Okay? in um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, okay? It's the same terms. So they're supposed to be like priest, priest kings on earth, okay? So it's, you get this. 
Adam is not a Pharaoh, but he's like a priest king on earth, and we're all supposed to be pre like a kingdom of priests, right? You ever heard that? That goes all the way through into the New Testament, right? With um, Peter picking this back up, right? This theme, okay? Um, so um, that, on the positive side, on the negative side, everybody remembers the negative side, right? You may eat from all the trees except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you got the prohibition, right? And as we know, they violate the covenant. Okay? Um, several things on that. Adam is supposed to work in the garden before the fall. After the fall, he's also supposed to work, but just be aware of this. He's working as a priest king, as God's representative, God's region in the garden before the fall. And he's keeping the garden like a priest on earth. Okay? I'll come back to that next time. But that's, that's important to know that for understanding the Bible. And notice that even though you don't get the term bereed here, in, for instance, Hosea chapter 6, 7. I'm just giving this to you as a point of reference. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. So he's talking about Israel, and he's talking about all the way back to Adam. So what is the word of God saying? In Hosea, the word of God is telling you that Adam was under covenant obligations. So again, I'm not pounding this reformed the theological viewpoint. I'm just telling you, I am telling you that if somebody beats you up about this, okay, other parts of the Bible refer to a covenantal relationship back with Adam. Everybody see that? Okay. Um, and then part two uh, let's at least get to this, and I'll get to Noah next time, I guess. Noah's pretty interesting, and then we'll keep going. Um, Genesis uh, 3, after the fall, you get curses and grace, and especially the Proto-Evangelium, which is in 3.15. And let's just go to that before we close, okay? Uh, so, in Genesis 3.15, this is the gospel. This is the messianic prophecy that happens in the garden after the fall. And really interestingly, the Lord is speaking to the serpent. Now, now by the way, serpent is a you know, reference to who the deceiver is. Okay? It's like if I said, he's a beast. Does that necessarily mean I'm talking about a wild animal? If I say he's a monster, that man is a monster. Don't go out with him, Grace. He's a monster. Does that mean I think he's like Frankenstein, literally? No, okay, so you, you've got biblical literary terminology going on here, okay? But anyway, the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. Now, you can read that literally, but I'm telling you, that is the language in the ancient Near East for people who are subjugated. And what God is telling the serpent is, you think you've won? You're going to be biting the dust. I mean, we still talk about, like, if, if a team gets beaten really bad, they, they what? They bite the dust, right? Uh, they're as good as dead, right? Okay. So, um, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is, verse 15. This is the gospel. This gets tracked all the way through Jesus. 
You have to know this verse. You really have to know this verse. You've heard me talk about it before, but let's just hit it here before we close up. Genesis 3, 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed... You know that, lang that language by now, right? Here's the introduction of this seed language with respect to the gospel. Between your seed and her seed... Somebody who is born of woman is going to have serious battle with you. And this is why you're going to end up eating the dust, serpent. Okay, so let's see what happens. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So you're going to strike him, potentially a mortal blow. But the head represents power and long-term existence. And what that just said is... You may kill him, but he's going to take your whole house out. Does everybody see that? Yeah. That's the gospel, and that tracks all the way through Golgotha, the cross, and the resurrection, and ultimately through Revelation chapter 20. Okay? Good? Okay, so that's some stuff on covenant. We'll keep going in two weeks because next week we have Ash Wednesday service. So this is, as I said, I'll continue to expand this handout, but this is for February 10th and the 24th. Everybody good? All right, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Be with us, Lord, as we grow in your word. And thank you, O Lord. That, uh, Lord, it's totally by your grace, but you are so good, that we can be seed, um, daughters, and sons of Abraham through faith, through the faith that you give us. What a joy, Lord, to love you and to belong to you as your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.